Hi, my name is Lauren Mitchell. And before we get this shit started properly, I'm going to just throw a little trigger warning on top of my intro this week. I'm going to talk a bit about body issues, food issues, food issues and body issues as they pertain to the holidays and all of that good stuff. So if that is not your jam, if you don't want to listen to me talk about that stuff, just probably jump five or seven minutes ahead and I'll be I'll be done. <laughs> and we'll be talking to Carrie Brownstein. started going to the gym again. I'm not a very athletic person, if you know me at all. I was a kid who was like, yeah, I'll just skip track and field. I'll be over here reading a book if that's okay with everyone. I've been too skinny. I've been, not that I don't know if there's any such thing as too skinny. I'm trying really not to place value judgments on me or on you or on anyone. But I've really been every size my body could possibly be. But maybe I was like, slightly nutty to start this process like right around the holidays which is my favorite time to eat a lot of cheese and live my best sedentary lifestyle but I think what's like really fills me with anxiety about working out again is the fact that people are going to be nicer to me when I start to lose weight I fucking hate that shit When I was at my thinnest was when people, and I mean men and women, were nicest to me. I always had my best luck with men when I was at a certain size. People always told me that I looked great, that I looked beautiful. I mean, I try to think that there's nothing wrong with where I'm at, whatever I look like. But it always felt to me like when I sort of got down to a certain size and People were telling me I looked great and men wanted to take me out on dates and all of this stuff. It was like there was something initially wrong with me. The implication of that is you look so much better. Which is crazy. It stresses me out when people want to live within those confines, and it super stresses me out when those kind of binary judgments are placed on my body. My body is mine. I don't think that it's better or it's worse, and I don't think that's really a judgment that other people should be allowed to make. Based on what I look like or what they perceive me to look like. And so I find that really stressful. And I think it's why I've been like not telling people that I've been working out again or trying to sort of like hide it from people because I just don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about my body with other people. I 
just feels really invasive. And like, I know for a fact that people think it's like complimentary, but I don't know. Just like, tell me my eyebrows look nice. I just want everyone to be able to feel comfortable with their own selves and with their own bodies. If I was gonna do this in a New Year's resolution-y type way, that would be what I wanted. Not to be about goal weights or muscle mass or my quads, wherever those are, but more about feeling like whatever body I was in was the right body for me, whatever my size, whatever I look like. And I want that for all of you too. I just want us all to feel good and feel happy and be comfortable. <laughs> Is that corny? I don't know. I think it's just nice. <laughs> any ideas on how to help me alleviate my anxiety over this? Are there ways in which you cope with these kinds of like weird judgments, especially in an additionally stressful time like the holidays? Honestly, like I'd love to know. Please tweet at me. Please help me. <laughs> Please help me. <laughs> You can at me at Internet Lauren. You can at me at Cavern of Secrets. I'll respond to you on either one, I promise. Uh, and I look forward to all of your advice. I need all the help I can get. I always need advice. I mean, if you generally have advice that's not too like patronizing, I'll take that too. But generally, I'd like to know how you deal with the anxiety around this kind of thing. It would, it would help me a lot. And on that note, I want to introduce you to our guest this week, who probably doesn't need an introduction, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to her anyways. Uh, our guest this week is real, all-around, rad human, the musician, comedian, actor, really brilliant writer, Carrie Brownstein. Uh, we're so stoked that she was able to come into the studio, and I hope that you enjoy our conversation. picked up a Margaret Atwood book from the stacks here. They let you take one. It's required yeah. when you come to Canada. Yeah, actually, it's true. Mm -hmm. uh, we make you take a Drake CD on the way out as well. Oh, right? I have all the Drake yeah. CDs already. <laughs> Not CDs, actually, but yeah. I have them digitally. Yeah. I read an interview with you in Noisy recently where you were talking about loving rap music, and I was like, great, I just want to talk to you about rap music. Great, we can talk about <laughs> Drake's good album this year. Which one do you think is the good one? Well, you only put out one this year. I'm counting What a Time to Be Alive, the Drake and Future mixtape. Okay. I, uh, I mean, I think uh, If You're Reading This Is Too Late is a great record. I said on record <laughs> yesterday that I thought it was the best, my favorite record of the year. Uh, I like Kendrick's record better as a, in terms of, I mean, that's my overall not even separating into any kind of genre. I think the Kendrick Lamar album and the Joanna Newsom album are my favorites of the year. Yeah, I was, mine were Drake and Carly Rae Jepsen. Oh. So just like maybe the slightly popular versions of yeah, those two basically. things. basically. Yeah. And I have to pick them because they're both Canadian, so. Oh, yeah, that's also a requirement. Yeah. Real strict like can con laws up here. It's like a quota that you're, Yeah. yeah. 
Drake is like one of your best exports in oh man in, of all time. I of would all time. He's really evened us out on the Brian Adams front. I think. Yeah. People are gonna forget about Brian Adams. Or not. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> um, no, I'm. I've been a long time Drake fan. I used to have a podcast about Drake. Just about him? Yeah, my friend and I just talked about Drake for now, hours. <laughs> what's your favorite of his albums? Do you like Take Care of the Best? Yeah, I sure do. Oh my gosh, I'm showing, reference. There's I'm a showing tattoo. Gary my uh, Drake tattoo, yeah. That's uh, amazing. Um, <laughs> that's also my favorite Drake album. Yeah. I think I listened to it recently and I was like, oh yeah, this sounds like it was made yeah. yesterday. And it's still my favorite appearance of Weekend on anything. Mm-hmm. Like, I think The Weekend is fine. I, you know, he's written some poppy songs this year, but I really love him on on that Drake record. Yeah. Yeah. He's great. Yeah. He, right around, bef- sort of slightly before that, he had put out that uh, House of Balloons mixtape, which was... Very long, yeah. right? It's- and had everyone in Toronto all, like, buzzing, too. So yeah. it was sort of a cool... When they started working together, it was real... We are real stoked here in Canada when anyone thinks anything we do is cool, so... <laughs> <laughs> It's, like, extremely rare. Your new prime minister, I think, has put you guys back in the cool category. Yeah. I I feel like Justin Trudeau is hella corny, is what I would say. And right before the election, I, was like, somehow got kept getting put on the Liberal Party of Canada mailing lists. And mm-hmm. they were real nightmare to get off of so i'm like residually i'm like whatever justin trudeau <laughs> right you're you're a little bit irked by it but i think all political emails and lists are a little bit bothersome because yeah. they're they're tedious and they're very overzealous yeah and he kept like i hate the like disingenuousness of like signing it like from justin trudeau i was like bitch i know you didn't write this email like <laughs> can you please <laughs> i have a story though about that kind of assumption which was that I met, um, I mean, you're totally right. He did not sign that email. <laughs> I'm not about to prove you wrong on that. But um, this is, I guess, a humble brag. But I went onto the Colbert show, the new one, the mm-hmm. show, or the late show mm-hmm. with Stephen Colbert. And the other guest was Hillary Clinton. Oh, wow. And some of her people took a picture of, of us. And I put it on my Instagram. And I said, I said something to the effect of, well, you know, I bet she's gonna regram this, you know, or like. <laughs> and I was sort of joking, and then she did, and I just thought, never underestimate Hillary Clinton. Wow. Which I think is actually a good lesson in general, because I think people, people do underestimate her in a handful of ways, and she's very tough, and she's um, she's very smart, and I I was I was flattered. I'm a fan of hers. Yeah, she's fascinating, and I mean like. You guys are really balls deep in your election cycle over there. Are, <laughs> yes, balls deep. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's a good way of putting it that no one has yet. So. <laughs> well, I didn't pay a lot of money to get an English degree for nothing. You know what I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, I was in New York in the summer and I was having drinks with some like friends of mine who are like expats. They like are Canadian, but they live in New York. I get what an expat is. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe your uh, listeners don't. I don't know. I'm really Conrad blacking <laughs> yeah. this uh, linguistically. Um, we were complaining because Stephen Harper, when he called the election, he made it an 11 week election cycle, which in Canada is incredibly long. It's mm-hmm. like double the time it normally is. And yeah, I remember my friend saying, Oh my God. <laughs> she was like, What? 
what a luxury to complain about an 11 week election cycle. She's like, I'm sick. I'm sick of it. Like, I'm done. Yeah, we've had four Republican debates, I think. And it's been a year of politicking, at least more than a year, really. Um, And now we still have essentially another year, a little less before the actual election. Um, And yeah, we're going to suffer a collective fatigue for sure. Um, because already I think people feel disenfranchised from the electoral process Mm -hmm. in the U.S. And this kind of inundation with just like punditry and politicking is, um, yeah, it's fatiguing. And I think it's just uh, people get a little bit confounded, which is maybe the point, because by the time you're voting, you're just (laughs) voting for everyone to shut up. Yeah, you're just crumpling your ballot up and throwing it at someone. Um, Are you going to miss Barack and Michelle? Yeah. Me too. (laughs) As a non-American, me too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, whoever steps into the White House is is neither Barack or Michelle Obama, who are a great first couple Mm -hmm. and um, certainly made America, like you were talking about, you know, the cool points in Canada, um, you know, I think made America cool and was a big step forward for us. And he's just, they're such a bright, interesting Mm -hmm. couple. You know, there's a lot to admire about their relationship, about their parenting, you know, let alone their beliefs and their convictions. But they're just a great first family. Yeah. Also, super good looking. Just very attractive. (laughs) Michelle Obama is like, there's so much to, he's a handsome guy, but she's just got these like amazing, like supple, sinuous, like Mm -hmm. arms. And she just like looks great in in clothes. And yeah, she's always so well dressed, but in a not like super ostentatious way. Not at all. And she's always like pairing up with interesting people. Like she just did this like rap video with Jay Farrell from SNL um, about promoting like going to school, like going to college. You know, she's 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 very, uh, I don't know. She's just got her heart in the right place. But she also like knows how to not take herself too seriously. It's like a nice balance. There was a super funny hashtag that went around on Twitter about that. That was like Flotus bars. Like people were like making up raps that Michelle Obama might do. And I was just like, what a time to be alive. You know what I mean? What a great. Sometimes social media is a real uh, crap hole of humanity. But then sometimes you're like, man, people are really out here having fun. I read your book. It was really beautiful. Um, but now I feel like uh, we, we have a one-sided best friendship. That's like my one-sided. Like, I feel like I know a lot about you. Yeah. So you want me to ask you a bunch of questions in this interview? <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I love to talk about myself. <laughs> There's That's the only reason you become a comedian is to like get on stage and talk about yourself. Um, we've been like doing press for the book, obviously. Do you find people are like overly familiar with you or do you just find that like as a like someone who makes art in a public sphere, like people have always been overly familiar with you in these kind of situations? Um, I think, I mean, I, I write a lot about fandom in the book, and I do think that there, part of being a fan is to, I think, assume a closeness and a, emotional intimacy with someone based on lyrics or based on, mm-hmm. um, you know, their writing or any kind of output. Even if you're looking at someone's sculpture or film, you think like, oh, this person understands me. It's just that that recognition that happens when you're a fan and, and that sort of, I, especially when you're really fanatic about somebody, you think like, 
they we would definitely be friends. <laughs> like I've thought that about a lot of people. I still do. You know, I think everyone like a good example of that right now is like Jennifer Lawrence. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone just thinks like, well, we would be best friends. Yeah. And then when her and Amy Schumer became best friends, it was just like people's heads like exploded because it was like two people that everyone thought like, you know, in this, anyway. Um, so I but I think social media. So I'm saying like before this ability to let people know how sort of the kinship you felt with them. Um, I think that still existed, that sense of similarity and familiarity. But social media, I think, really, like, fosters that and really, like, makes that more pronounced where I do get a sense that people feel a connection. And that's, I think, always been a reason that I've wanted to to make things and put things out in the world. The book, I think the main difference um, is that some people think I might have insight into their lives. That's yeah. been more confusing. Um, some of the Q&As, um, not necessarily with um, press, but with um, at like the book talks and, mm-hmm. and the readings have been like pretty intense, like profound questions about self-help. And it's, it's not even near a self-help book. That's so fascinating. Yeah. But I think there is that thing of, um, I guess, because the book hopefully is, insightful and self-aware that people think like, well, maybe you know something about me that I don't know. Well, I think the idea, I think the way that you write about being a fan is incredibly relatable Mm -hmm. and like how you got into music and all of that by being a fan of it and just sort of wanting to participate Mm -hmm. more than anything. I think that's like, I think that's incredibly relatable, but I don't know if I'd ever read it like sort of spelled out in a way that I was like oh yeah yeah I've been I've been exactly there mm-hmm. you know what I mean um my friend asked me recently if I thought that when I was older if I would be living like the sort of creative life that I live now and I was like no when I was a teenager I was just like I'm a fan I'm a fan of stuff I thought mm-hmm. that was my like place in the mm-hmm. dichotomy but I think it's interesting when you grow older and it's the lines are so blurred. Yeah, and I think they're more blurred now than ever. Like I think about like memes and gifts and mm-hmm. the way that people, you know, we can bring it right back around to Drake, like with Hotline Bling, but just basically the way that people co-opt mm-hmm. um, art and can insert themselves not into just an imagined narrative, but actually into a visual relationship with a piece of work Mm -hmm. Um, or into a sonic narrative where they can change lyrics or put a different melody in it. And it's just, it's very malleable. And I like that. I feel like fans have never had more tools at their disposal to um, become part of the work. And I think a lot of people have started that way and actually end up doing their own things, you know, sort of are discovered first by the ways that they've um, been fans and the ways that they've professed their fandom. That's an exciting time. There's something about the like, well, like how accessible it is. And then maybe even beyond that, like how accessible the person seems like I'm thinking about the Pope having Twitter. And an album. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then like whenever he tweets something, like people are just like, teens tweet like fuck me daddy at him which is like I'm like there's something about that that way that you can just like engage with someone so casually who you've never met who you're like this is just like a famous person and I want to say this shit to them yeah and like see what happens do you know what I mean I mean I'm sure people were always writing fanfic but 
Yeah, but not getting like Fifty Shades of Grey published. Yeah, which right that was Twilight, yeah, it was the Twilight, Twilight fanfic. fanfic somehow. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure how they can. I can't. Uh, I have not read either of them. I will admit that I have not either. But we both know that it was fan fiction. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea of fan fiction, I think, is very relatable because even, and I think you're totally right, I'm sure people were writing like fanzines or even before that, mm-hmm. just like in a journal, journaling or diaristic kind of way, like imagining their favorite characters from books or TV, yeah. like engaging in whatever is separate fringe love story or (laughs) adventures or something yeah I definitely like did that when I was a kid and was like writing in my journal about like Jonathan Taylor Thomas or oh JTT yeah JTT yeah well remember those this is might have been ahead of your time but those um choose your own adventure books Mm -hmm. yeah like I kind of feel like the internet is just like has now we have all the options like you don't have to make a choice to go to page 33 or go to page 55 for the rest of the story you can go to all of it yeah you can just read the whole fucking book from page one to page 100 or whatever yeah and like it all exists in like this very like multitudinous multifaceted way like at your disposal and you're just like bouncing between all these different like ideas and like things from one band are crossing over to another in your imagination or in your tweet or whatever <laughs> on your Tumblr page. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh it's very dynamic. I guess my next I think the logical though follow-up question to this idea that we're talking about is then what constitutes like quality? Like how do you start to measure you know, what then is an artist or who or you know what I mean? Yeah. That 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 starts to get I'm not going to personally worry about that, but I would say if I was and I guess I do ask questions, but that would be where my next question is. You yeah. Know? I mean, I think that you're right, but I also think that, like, you know, fuck the canon. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't give – you know, I I was saying this to someone recently. One time <laughs> one time when I was, like, 19, I got really high on mushrooms and tried to read Heart of Darkness. Mm-hmm. And got, like, two pages in and was like, the fucking literary canon is a lie. This is a piece of shit. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> That's Joseph Conrad, right? I <laughs> yeah. feel like – Colonel Kurtz. No, I feel like I haven't. I don't know if I fully read that book either. I think I was required to read it at some point. Yeah. Heart of Darkness. But yeah, I think I would be interested if people or curious if people would like read something like Moby Dick if it was just delivered as a tweet every day for the oh, next. <laughs> but you've given someone an art project. <laughs> please, but it, I probably would. You yeah. Know? You, you know, know what? Me too, actually. And I have never gotten more than 20 pages into Moby Dick. <laughs> Yeah, so let's start a Twitter feed tomorrow. We just yeah. have to run it. Just all we have to do is type a couple sentences a day. Yeah, and then we're gonna get a cool installation at MoMA. Yeah, our new museum. Um, yeah. and probably a book about it. Yeah. Right when this interview ends, we should yeah, be we registering gotta, that, that <laughs> we'll handle. Just cut this out. We got a business idea. Yeah, now. We're, we're going over to a tech company. <laughs> I think we both know what we're doing with the next ten years. Yeah, <laughs> think about this, Moby Dick in a hundred and forty. But yeah, I sort of think that like I love the the way that the internet has democratized art in a weird way. Yeah. Because I think, like, going back to rap, I think about someone like, even someone like McConan, who's like, or someone earlier than that, like Soldier Boy, mm-hmm. who took, who used the internet to his advantage and became famous maybe before, like, the art was ready. Mm-hmm. But, like, does that matter? Like, does it matter if your process 
if all that changes in public, I don't, I don't know. I just think that like the idea of like what makes you an artist, what gets into the canon, all of that stuff is like, I think it needs to be reevaluated anyways. Yeah. Or the idea that like the artist is like this like lone genius, like toiling away Mm -hmm. and isn't going to reveal the masterpiece until it's like been deemed ready. Like Mm -hmm. the fact that like there's, we can see the bones of things and the Mm -hmm. skeleton and like you know, whether it's like a mixtape or, yeah, like it's just, it does demystify things. And I think that it does change that sort of, yeah, whether it's the canon or artist with a capital A, like that is all kind of becoming more fragmented, which I think does serve to dismantle like the idea of, you know, these like certain sort of monolithic like structures that like exist as the only way of us, you know, well, that is good art and this is bad art. I do think that is becoming more conflated. But my not issue with it, but what I something I think about is how the conflation of high and low, which mm-hmm. I think the internet does too, because what you're reading and how we view it, it's mediated through the same screen. So like sometimes less so with art, but more so with things like politics mm-hmm. and sort of like big issues, when that is coming to me mediated through the same screen as some like cat. <laughs> meme you know like sometimes I'm just like how is how is my brain you know what I mean like yeah. it's the same blip ultimately uh-huh. so that is where the way that screens mediate information for us um or the flattening of it because I it's just weird to have everything kind of filtered through the same I like that you're drinking a Tim Horton. <laughs> it's really close to here. <laughs> is it tea? Uh, yeah, it is. I'm little, also drinking tea. Oh, nice. little English break going on. Yeah, English here. breakfast. Yeah, it's the jam. <laughs> well, it's, you know, I'm in a Commonwealth country. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Queen Elizabeth Queen, is the one, I think. <laughs> Forever, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Elizabeth 1 through 30, whatever. Yeah, well, she's going to be around a while. I think Charles is going to, he's going to be pretty old before he. Yeah, and she's like a million years old. I'm. I know nothing about the monarchy. <laughs> well, I, I know less. I'm. I'm in a country that purposely. Yeah, we fought a war to to remove ourselves. We're we're actually not part of the Commonwealth. I cheers, didn't know that. cheers to that. <laughs> Buddy, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, y'all y'all sided with the French. You had some shit shit going on with the French. They also didn't like the. Um, anyways, I know a lot about like the monarchy. I love. The oh, those day- are the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah, yeah. But I love the parts of the monarchy when they were just like sort of like up to the Edwardian period when they were just like wilding out just 100 percent of the time. (laughs) I remember watching this special about the uh, place that Downton Abbey is filmed in. And they were like talking to this historian and they were just like, yo, if there be have 100 people for dinner, everyone gets a turtle. (laughs) Everyone gets an almost extinct turtle. Those turtles cost $20 each. Is that more than a scullery maid made in a whole year? Fuck yeah, it is. <laughs> I was like, what? What was happening here? We miss, and we all miss those days. Yeah. I miss a, the day of just showing up at a friend's house, getting an exotic animal. Yeah. Baby tiger, baby white tiger, <laughs> <laughs> and what? going home as in a gift bag. You yeah. know, when's the last time I've been to a wedding where someone's given me a black market animal yeah. that I have to like, you know. Or like a tusk? Uh, yes, an elephant <laughs> tusk. <laughs> or, or sorry, a rhino tusk, yeah. I think are the ones that are really. Yeah, I think ivory and, and diamonds are things that we need to just oh, yeah. really start. Start eating sea turtles again? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, there was that story, you know, people go and look at these sea turtles like 
going out into the is this in Costa Rica? I don't know where it is. I'm going to totally mess up the geography here. Basically, tourists have taken over this whole area where these turtles are supposed to be like returning and like laying eggs and oh, they yeah. they mess it up by watching. Which oh. seems like a metaphor for something. Yeah. The observer's paradox. Oh, voyeurism, man. Yeah. Reality TV. <laughs> yeah. Those turtles didn't even know what they were getting into. I know. They're just like the Kardashians. Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> They've all had so much plastic surgery. Yes. And they barely look like turtles anymore. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. The when they When Darwin discovered those sea turtles, it took them so long to name them. The, whatever their Latin name ended up being. I don't know what that is either because apparently they're, the reason they ate them almost to extinction is because they're so good. In his diaries, he wrote that they taste better than beef, chicken, lamb, marrow, butter. Like, they taste better than butter? Do you know what I mean? Wow. I was like, no wonder you... We could be spreading turtle on bread yeah. and toast. <laughs> <laughs> they would, like, stack them. Apparently, they're quite easy to stack, and uh-huh. they also hold a bunch of fresh water in their shells. So <laughs> they would get stacks of them and try to take them back to... England so they could like probably dissect them and study them and put them in some sort of Darwin book. I'm a scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, but they would like get halfway across and they'd be like, we got to eat we this. We need some fresh water and some of this delicious turtle. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, humans are the worst. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a good just moral to this conversation. Yeah. Colonialists, yeah. <laughs> imperialists, even the turtles. Yeah, even turtles aren't safe. Yeah, yeah, we really did it. <laughs> I wonder why, if that's why, um, that there's that chocolate that's just turtle. Why would they name a chocolate? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, turtles? I know exactly with the nuts and the caramel. Yeah, and they maybe like... they were just like, this is also like now we've run out of turtles to eat, so let's just create something called a turtle that's also delicious. Yeah, man, turtles are good. My dad really hates them. What a weirdo. <laughs> um, they live a long time. I can see how somebody, like, you would not, if you had a turtle in your family, you would be like, oh, who, you know, you would just think, like, I'm, any of us could live, end up with this turtle. Like a tortoise, sorry. Yeah. You well, know? my dad hates the chocolate turtles, not real turtles. Oh, I I'm sorry. I feel like he's I probably pretty ambivalent about turtles. Okay. <laughs> I just thought you were, your dad was taking a stand on, on the animal. I grew up in a very anti-turtle household. <laughs> That's too bad. That's very close. That's very close-minded. Yeah, we weren't even allowed to watch the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> it was glorifying the turtle community. Yeah, and yeah, and artists, and yeah. artists like you know Renaissance artists. <laughs> My dad also hates Donatello and yeah. Raphael. Oh man, who doesn't? Mm-hmm. Well, who's the one? Michelangelo, the painted the ceiling. Who does he the, think the he Sistine is? The Sistine Chapel. You know? I gotta look up. <laughs> Fuck you, man. I know. I wanted that on the floor. Yeah, art's so much easier if it's just like this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> are you really a science science professor background? No. Oh God, oh, no. Okay. Uh, I mean, it seemed like it could go either way. I just know weird facts. I like about that. I, have, <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, Darwin. Yeah. I mean, you, maybe you read a, his books. You know what? I used to date a very condescending man who was a microbiologist. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Like people that like are sort of like the worst to you, like you retain the most facts yeah. from that person. The basis of our relationship was arguing about which one of us was smarter. Oh, that's a terrible basis yeah. for a relationship. I'm really sorry. <laughs> yeah, would you believe it did not end well? Um, <laughs> science people always think that I'm on his podcast next. So yeah, we'll figure that out. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
you sort of wrote the Pacific Northwest as like a character. And I wonder if that was like intentional or if it just like is. Uh, historically, I've I liked novels and books where um, place is a character. Yeah. You know, I love like Willa Cather. Mm-hmm. I love James Baldwin's Harlem. I talk about this a little bit in my book about traveling to places and really associating them with the way that writers, you know, have brought them to life. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, um, the TV show that I work on, Portlandia, like the city, um, the sort of fictional version of of the city is a character to which people relate or don't relate or, you know, are in conflict or concert with. And um, so I, I think I am very like aware of the way landscape is both internal and external and the way that what surrounds you starts to kind of permeate your psyche. And um, the Northwest is just an interesting place for me. Like, um, I mean, it's starting, I think, finally to change in the same way that a lot of cities are just sort of growing, I think, in ways, unfortunately, that make them a little bit more homogenous. But up until very recently, it really kind of did feel like the final frontier. It literally is the, you know, aside from basically Alaska, like Mm -hmm. the final sort of frontier of place people do kind of go to disappear, a place where I will still see lots of drifters and drifters a different category than a homeless person, Mm -hmm. you know, people that have sort of purposely removed themselves from these infrastructures of society, these sort of norms. And um, I think that's a strange, that's a wilderness, I think, that really um, can possess people or that people yearn for. And I'm interested in the ways that a modicum of that inserts itself into other forms of culture there. You know, the people that aren't like drifters and wild men and women, but the way that it's entered into the music or enters into something like Nike or businesses, Mm -hmm. you know, just, you know, you do see a lot of this kind of um, just forward thinking and sort of outsider thinking that's come from that area. So I'm interested in that. Yeah. That's one of my favorite, like, sort of tropes in writing. Mm-hmm. The, the way Flannery O'Connor makes me, like, think about the South and all that kind of stuff. Have you been watching that show Fargo by chance? I haven't. I highly recommend it. I assume it's up here, too. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you know, it's, I think in the in North America we have a much more, we don't have as, as many of those, like, proprietary, like, copyright laws that you mm-hmm. do between, like, North America and yeah. Europe. Um, and you're nodding your head in agreement. Yes, we don't. But yes, anyway, Fargo is very much places character. Oh, that's great. I think it's, I think it's interesting to do in a TV or film, and I don't think I've ever been as like moved by it in that medium as I have been, say, when I've read uh, good fiction that does it. Yeah, and I think sometimes when it's moving in that medium, it's because it's it's directors that are about duration, like someone like Terrence Malick or something mm-hmm. that definitely uses place as character but it requires like this patience yeah (laughs) i think that some people don't have with with film especially um whereas books yeah i mean you want you get exposition that's part Mm -hmm. of it you know we're just hitting all the topics yeah oh man i got topics I feel like touring for a book is like a little less rock and roll than touring for a rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> yes. I mean, you stated it plainly, but truthfully, uh, it is less rock and roll. I mean, I can imagine actually the way that some there's these greeters um, that pick you up sometimes in like the cities where like your publishing house isn't based. Uh-huh. And there are these kind of literary 
greeters or shadows. Sometimes they call themselves different names. And I can... (laughs) (laughs) Babysitters. Yeah, I'm so interested (laughs) in this subculture. And they're all very, very, very nice. But they work with pretty much every author that comes through there. And they're they're sort of like independent contractors. And I can tell by the way that they're very... um, over careful that there must be some writers that do live or behave a little more in a rock star vein. I don't because I'm I'm pretty responsible, but yeah. I I'm not naming any names because I don't have any. But maybe or maybe some people are just disorganized, or maybe these people just really like to sort of handle things with kid gloves. Maybe they one time had to take Brady Stanells on a tour and they were <laughs> like, "Fuck this guy." <laughs> yeah, it's hard to tell, but I could, I did I kind of got the impression like, "Oh, someone has messed this up before." Like someone has not met you in the lobby at yeah. 10. You know, you've had to go to a room before and get like the concierge to lead lead you up to the 10th floor or something. I used to work in publishing. Um it was weird how many, like, crazy stories I heard about writers. I was like, I love to read. Like, I think of writers as, they're, like, celebrities to me. Me, like, too. Like, Drake's a celebrity to me. Yeah. Uh, but I was like, man, there's stories that, like, bosses of mine would tell me that I was like, that person acted like, what? <laughs> and, like, they, <laughs> right, being a writer is so different because you walk down the street and people, like, Don't. unless you're me, like, like I know I would know what a lot of writers that I read look like, but it's not like you're getting stopped. People, Yeah, so maybe a, a book tour is kind of the opportunity to mm-hmm. sort of take advantage of that moment of celebrity and recognition. Yeah. And so they're just kind of like stepping into that role and overplaying it a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> kind of stepping uh, on the gas a little yeah. hard. Ye old tortured genius. Yeah, but the weird thing about these Canadian dates is that they literally coincided with this, this last run of um, my band Slater Kinney's dates. So I just finished a tour last night in, oh my God. <laughs> in New York. And in the Montreal um, bookstop was literally in the middle of the tour. So we, we had gone on a couple dates in the Midwest and then we hit Detroit and the rest of the band had a day off and I flew up and did a reading in Montreal and then joined up with the tour. So so right now I'm very aware of the distinctions between the two. Oh, wow. There's a lot of things that I love about um, the book tour, but the autonomy is a little bit refreshing because mm-hmm. moving in a large group of people is very clunky. It's just, it's never graceful. Like, yeah. obviously we can separate from each other and do our own things, but there's always, you know, like, well, okay, everyone needs to meet in the lobby at 3.30. There's a car coming to get us to the venue. And then you get down there and someone's missing. Then someone decides to run back to their room because, they're, you know, and it's yeah. just like everything, it takes an extra 20 minutes, which I become very accustomed to. But I forgot how nice it is to just, yeah. oh, I'm the only one I'm responsible for and I can eat whenever I want. I'm never waiting for anybody to make decisions. And so as much as I like all that collaborative group stuff, the main difference is actually that. Yeah, it's like trying to like ranch cats or whatever. yeah. Uh, herd cats. Herd cats, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like the idea of a, a ranch full of cats, though. <laughs> Just raising cats for beef or whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah. My cat's pretty fat. I think you could maybe... Uh, yeah, if you had thousands more yeah, and had a little bit of property out in, in Alberta. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, a little cow, cow town Canada over west... Yonder and near Calgary, right? Yeah, yeah. Really break up the beef industry, get the cat beef industry going. <laughs> yeah, I think people. Will, I mean, even vegans would be into that. Yeah, yeah. Because especially like, dog loving vegans would be yeah. like, well, we eat cat now. Well, we'll and cool <laughs> I feel like a, a big like vegan vegetarian thing is always like 
you'll eat the cow, but not the cute one. And I'm just like, well, fuck you, man. We'll eat all these cute kitties. <laughs> Look what you did. You caused this mass murder. <laughs> right after we start our Moby Dick Twitter handle, we are starting a cat cafe. People will think it's one of those cafes where you go and there's like a couple cute cats hanging around. It's just like, no, there's a sandwich and that thing you're eating is a cat. And it's it's like that episode of The Simpsons where they go to that steak restaurant and they get to kill their own cow. And Mr. Burns just keeps being like, no, that one didn't die right. That one didn't die right. We like let you. No, that's getting yeah. darker. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't want to know how my cats are being killed. <laughs> when I'm eating like a filet of cat, I, I just want to assume it died naturally in the back. You, you, don't, you didn't know that when you cut a cat's head off, it runs around in circles. <laughs> People haven't really thought about this. Like, you know, supposedly we're, you know, running out of a food supply, but there are they always talk about how many homeless cats yeah. there are. Like tons of homeless. So. <laughs> yeah, we've had a lot of pretty big ideas on this podcast um, so far. I think that we're about to be millionaires. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and once we become collectively millionaires and independently wealthy, uh, then we can both run for uh, our respective presidencies. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, could you imagine if you were the president and then I was the prime minister and then we just amalgamated North America, wait for it, and then we made all of North America a big cat farm. <laughs> and everyone was like really happy because cats are like therapeutic, but then also they're a food source. They're sustenance, I think yeah. we're ready for the apocalypse is what I would Yeah, we no, I mean, people have been thinking in terms of like panic rooms and like guns, but cats. Yeah. Cats. You need to be hoarding yeah. cats. <laughs> plenty of people, plenty of people already are. <laughs> and and you know what? National heroes. We've been putting them on TV shows with tawdry names like hoarders and yeah. like really maligning them. These are national heroes. These are the people that we're going to be going and buying beef from. Yeah. When shit is fucked up, <laughs> and uh, I will be driving, you know, eighty miles outside of Portland to a cat hoarder in Eastern Oregon and picking up my supply of cat meat for the month. <laughs> that you're feeding to your pet dogs as well. Yeah. That I'm, well, hey, I'm not going to eat my dog. <laughs> the dog, he looks at me. He raised his eyebrow. <laughs> you don't yeah. understand. Yeah. Um, also, by the way, I think something people, dog and cat people could agree on is that there's a lot of squirrels too. Yo, I was just going to say, my co literally yesterday one of my colleagues was telling me that like a friend of hers from high school keeps posting these pictures on Facebook about like, He's a hunter, but, like, one of the things that he hunts is squirrels. This happens in the States. I know I have friends from Arkansas that definitely had squirrel meat as kids. It's not that unusual. This guy also was, like, making a hat, like a hat and then a vet. I was like, how many squirrels squirrels had to die? I feel like that sounds like an insult. But, like, actually, how many squirrels do you need to make a fucking squirrel hat? Yeah. That's what I want to know. But that's also the guy that we need to find for the – we need to rope that guy into our business plans. Like to our cabinet. To yeah. Our cabinet. Not, not, it's not a business anymore. Yeah. It's, it's an election. Yeah. Oh, man. For yeah. the people, Let's from see. the people. What, 2000 what, – maybe 36 or something? Yeah, 2036 seems good. Okay. I'll be older than you. Yeah, but, but we'll both have gray hair, which I think is like something that you need as a politician. Yeah. Gravitas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gravy times. <laughs> Gravy train. <laughs> oh, man. We had a, I don't know if you know, we had a mayor here in Toronto. Oh, yeah. We, no, we all do. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he, his favorite thing in the election to talk about was the gravy train of 
the previous mayor of Toronto. And I was just like, man, this guy's never going to get, how are you going to use the most like overused like tropes and sayings and get elected to be the mayor of the biggest city in Canada? And and boy, it happened. Was, boy, was I wrong. Well, we're kind of experiencing on a larger scale that with Trump, mm-hmm. where, I mean, he speaks in cliches and pat phrases and pabulum and things that you think would, like, make people's ears, like, hurt. Yeah. And uh, and it's not. It's working. Yeah, I got to say, he scares the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think he'll be our president, but he is scaring the shit out of a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I've. Pray for you guys if he doesn't get elected. But Thank like, you for praying. Yeah, for <laughs> I'm like not religious, but I'm praying to Drake or someone. Yeah, I don't think of Canada as praying for America that much. I yeah. mean, well wishes. Yeah, but yeah, it was one thing to like get these jokes off about Trump, but like that man is for real running to be the Republican nomination. He's like leading in the polls, and he's just out here saying some insane shit. I was like banning oh. Muslims. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it's not. I was like, it's that should stop being funny to me a while ago. It's that's happening in America too. I think where, uh, yeah, there was a certain amount of time that it seemed like entertainment and folly, and mm-hmm. now it it seems legitimate, but. It's more of a concern for the Republican Party because he would get creamed in the national election, but he would be very damaging to the image of that party if if he was their candidate. Republican presidency in the U.S. is always great for satire. Mm -hmm. It's always great for music. Great punk and hardcore during the Reagan era. Yeah. Um, Great satire during Bush. You know, man, I used to go to punk shows in Canada when Bush was president. And mm-hmm. There'd just be like Canadians walking around being like, with those Bush is not my president shirts. I'd be like, nailed it. You nailed it. He's not. Yeah. But like that shit sort of came over here as well, where we were like. With Harper? Yeah. I can't say the same for Americans. I'm I sorry. Know, it's we, okay. We do. I think more people know about Trudeau than knew about Harper. Only towards the end of Harper's um tenure as your prime minister, yeah. did, there was a lot of articles in the U.S. critical of him and kind of letting us know sort of how Canada has suffered uh, under his leadership. He seemed pretty innocuous, but he was definitely like a lizard person. Yeah, that's, I mean? that's, that was kind of, <laughs> that was the impression I got. Um, and I think right now there just seems to be this parody between Obama and Trudeau. Um, of course, who knows? I don't know if that will still exist when we head into next year's election, but yeah. people are pumped. We're talking about politics on this podcast. Oh, yeah, buddy. <laughs> people, there's one thing people love. It's, well, I don't know. I think we made politics interesting. I think we've covered almost everything. Yeah, we've <laughs> we've gone from the people actually in power to in the future when we run our cat herding state. Plus turtles. Yeah. Darwin. Renaissance. Edwardian. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Times Monarchy, uh, Revolutionary War, uh, Acadia. Uh, (laughs) Man, you got a mind like a steel trap. I've already forgotten the whole thing. (laughs) Well, I'm going to repeat it back now for the second half of this podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yo, thank you for coming through. I know, like, you must be fucking exhausted. Um, But this was, like, the right tenor of, like, because I am a little bit tired, but I feel like... I think you might be right. We might actually be destined just for friendship at this oh, point. Buddy. Buddy. If you're ever in Toronto, <laughs> you want to hang out with a non-dead cat, I have one. <laughs> Great. I got two dogs. Aw. <laughs> we should have a play date? No, no, no let's done. not. You've read my book. <laughs> yeah, I know. God. <laughs> I wept.
Oh my gosh, thank you again so much to the brilliant and amazing Carrie Brownstein for coming through when she was in Toronto. We super appreciate her presence in our lives and in the studio. Cavern of Secrets is brought to you as per usual by Hazlitt. It's hosted by me, still me, Lauren Mitchell. Our theme was made by Bianca Giulioni. It's produced by my personal magic man. That's gross. Why did I say that? It's produced by our collective magic man, Anshaman Idamsetti. Special thanks to Emma Ingram. You can find us on iTunes, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud. We're pretty much everywhere, online and off. But online, you can find us all of those places. All you got to do is search Cavern of Secrets. You can also find us on our own beautiful, beautiful website, www.cavernofsecrets.com. Not .org, not .edu, not .net, .com. We're professionals, goddammit. Oh, and one other thing. If you like me, even at all, if you like me, if you like Inchman, if you like what we're doing, rate us on iTunes. We really appreciate it. It'd be a lovely Christmas present. <laughs> uh, and once again, I am Laura Mitchell. I am eternally grateful that you would even listen to this podcast. And if you got to the end of this, well, I think you're a humanitarian and you deserve an award. Mm-hmm.